As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. This is a podcast where we talk all things culture, leadership and teamwork across business and sport. To all our loyal listeners, the Culture of Things podcast will now have specific episodes produced for YouTube. To ensure you don't miss out on this exclusive YouTube content, head over to YouTube, click on the subscribe button, and hit the notification bell. Now, let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Cultural Things Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rogers, and today, this is episode 71. Today, I'm talking with Toby Marshall. Toby is the founder of Stable and Wise, and his mission is to solve ageism. He believes four skills that he's built up over many years will help achieve his mission. First, recruitment. He founded a recruitment business and published two books on job seeking, which are available on Amazon. He also wrote a book for employers on how to recruit better people, particularly the over 40s. Second, community building. He's built many large and vibrant communities, both online and offline. Third, coaching workshops for the mature. It's essential to upskill the over 40s so they can find the job they want. And fourth, marketing. He spent 12 years running a strategic marketing agency focused on community building. Toby says we will not solve ageism unless we get the message out there. Today, we're focused on ageism in the workplace. Toby, welcome to the Culture Things podcast. Thanks, Brendan. Mate, it's great to have you on. Now, we were talking a little bit off uh, off recording there before we hit the record button, and you told, told me you're 70 this year and you're having a live wake. Tell me a, a bit more about wake. that, mate. I've never heard of this live wake, a living wake. Look, most, I mean, I've got a bit of Irish heritage along with a few other things. And, um, you know, that's a big Irish tradition, you know, the, you know the, the wake. And it's always fun. It's a party and everything else. And people say all these nice and nasty things about, about the dead, usually nice because they, they, you can't speak ill of the dead. Well, a living wake, I'm there. And they're encouraged to say nasty things or at least tell the silly stories about me where I, you know, offended people. So we're having one of those in June this year. We're going to have at least 150 people here in our house and we're going to have a lot of fun. It does sound like a lot of fun. And uh, are you worried about anything in particular? Like, What, what do you think's the the thing that they're going to say really nice about you and what's the thing that they think that uh, you'll hear that's maybe not so nice? Well, the nice things are that we are friends with nearly all of our children's friends, and they they think we are the best parents that have ever existed, me and Sarah, um, Sarah and I, and um, 
because we've always gone on holidays with lots of kids' friends. So we, 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 you know, we were the only parents at most 21sts, at most weddings, most of everything, you know, we were, we were there. So anyway, they'll say nice things. My kids will say nice things, but they'll also say some appalling things. I don't know what exactly, but they will. But surely there's a bad habit they've said to you. Dad, oh. That is just a bad habit. What, what is it? Don't listen. But, God, I've been working on it hard. Dad, you never listen. Well, one of the things I do with all my staff and interns is I teach them to be more emotionally intelligent. And one of the keys to emotional intelligence is listening. So I've been working hard on that now for about three years, yeah, and I'm getting better, but I'm still shite. But you're improving. That's the main thing. I'm improving. So what's the, what's the shite meter? What, what level of shite do you sit at now as far as listening goes? Halfway. 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 You're only half shite. I'm only half shite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's certainly better than being full shite. Yeah, correct. I don't know. What else is it? I don't know. What else am I? I'm very set in my ways. I I believe strongly in so many things. Um, There's only a certain way. I don't like prejudice of any type. I don't, you know, and I can often cause upsets when I'm out with my my children or my wife because I challenge if anyone shows prejudice in front of me, I always call it out. And that can cause, you know, so little, I mean, I'm careful. I'm not rude about it. I just say, well, that's a bit much. Or really? You know, and, um, you know, I try to be friendly, but occasionally, you know, I get some very angry reactions. No one likes being called a racist, an ageist, a misogynist, or a disabledist. What's the word for that? I'm not sure what what it is. We've got a lot of this in society nowadays, mate. Yeah, we do. And you know the most important of all of them, the one that costs us the most money, that absolutely dwarfs all the others and is almost never discussed, it's today's topic, it's ageism. It dwarfs everything else because it gets combined with all the others and it just becomes a nightmare for people and for governments and for employers. Yeah, mate, and that's certainly what we're going to unpack a bit of today, given your extensive experience in that space. When did you first get involved in this or get interested in ageism? Ah, well, I, I was a recruitment consultant for many years, about 19 years, 18, 19 years. I wrote a few books on recruitment, careers, whatever. But then I started to see this pattern. I actually had a client, and this is where I really got upset. He runs one of the most successful funds management businesses in Australia. Still does, by the way. And, you know, he would never, he said to me one day, Toby, stop giving me people over 40. I will never hire anybody over 40 because if they haven't made it by 40, there's a good chance they won't make it with me. And I I don't want to waste time. I could be wrong, he said, but I'm not going to waste time. There's good people in their 20s and 30s. Now, he still holds those. And when he told me that, by the way, he was 48, 49. Yeah, and I was a couple, two years older than him. He still runs that business today, and and it's it's he runs he's on the global board as well. He, he's a serious person, lots of staff. Have you changed his thinking? I I couldn't change it. I still can't. I still play tennis with him every week, but you know I can't change his thinking. I cannot change it. So that's when I knew it was intractable. Then I started trying to solve it, and I thought I'll, I'll solve this easy. I'll just get some media coverage. Man, not a problem. So I was all over the place, even had seven, eight minutes on the 7.30 report, you know, and I had some poor financial, no, head of HR who couldn't find a job. Very employable guy, should have had a job straight away. 
you know, we had this long interview, you know, and I was on all the two news, Channel 10, Channel 7, I think. I was in all the broadsheets. I had a whole page in The Australian. What happened? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, I then I then got some partners together to try and solve it. GSC hit. And, you know, I had Zurich as a partner to try and solve this. And then GSC hits. And no one wanted to hire anybody. It was like when COVID hit, like suddenly, no, 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 go away. Not going to happen. As someone said to me, Toby, you're a jinx. It's the second time you tried this. First time was GFC. Second time was COVID. You've got great timing in life, mate. Great timing. But can I say <laughs> I'm glad I did because I didn't realise what the real problems were when I tried to launch this with, with some seed capital way back late 2019, early 2020. I would have wasted the entire seed capital. So let's let's just hold that thought about some of the sort of causes and, and can you just give it, what is this definition, you know, what, what's a well-known definition for you around ageism to help us understand a little bit better? Okay, employment ageism is when people are excluded from being, uh, being interviewed or being hired purely because of their, their age. It's as simple as that. When does ageism start? Part of the confusion and why no one believes ageism is a problem is no one can agree on what the date is. There is only one age that has incontrovertible proof of when ageism starts. And, you know, I mean, I can't even remember back to this, but it's when you're 40, age 40. And for women, it's actually 38, 39, because they also suffer from appearance ageism and uh, sexual attraction ageism. So many men don't want someone old in their office. Fact of life, you know. So New Zealand did a wonderful study on this. If you're a secretary, someone, you know, someone, um, it's an old study now, I must admit, it was around 2006, 2007. But if you were a secretary or a receptionist and you were over 40, forget it. You won't get an interview. So don't lose your job, yeah? Of course, if you network and someone knows you, how brilliant you are and so on, but most people don't have good networks. So with that example, you say, you know, a female over 40 and maybe executive assistant or reception or whatever, like what are the things that are going through someone's head to say, well, no, she's too old for that. Like, oh, we need a, a younger lady, a younger woman, a more vibrant woman, whatever the terms are going. What's going through their head? Whatever it is, it's what's going through their head is they're judging someone by the cover. Okay. And I'll talk about, in fact, I'll talk about it now because I think it's important. I like the analogy you can't judge a book by its cover. Well, when it comes to, let, let's say there's an old Mercedes parked on the side of a road with a big for sale sign sitting there, you know, and it's very dented and battered and, you know, it's for sale. And then you've got, you know, you're thinking, God, it's cheap, but will it last? Is it any good? Yeah. What you don't know is what's hidden. And it's the same with mature age people. Unless you know what's hidden behind the face, you don't know. Okay, and the big solution to ageism is to understand people's hidden strengths, and that's something we do, but but that come to that later. So what's going through their heads? Well, for a lot of men, I don't want to hire my mother. You know, you've got a 27-year-old office manager, you know, and he's going, I don't want to hire my mother. Uh, you've got sales managers who say, listen, if we're going to open doors, we've got to have attractive women. We can't have old, old boilers. We need short skirts. We need all that sort of stuff. So, you know, appearance ageism, and sexual attraction ageism is critical when it comes to front-facing jobs for women. 
Okay. It's also, to a lesser extent, for men, but marginal. You referred to the Mercedes, a motor vehicle. And if you think about the history of motor vehicles, say an age motor vehicle, you know, they, they start off really nice, everyone loves them and they're flashy and then they, they get older and they get sort of discarded, so to speak, but they hit that 30 years of age and everyone loves them again because they're now vintage. Is it, oh, does, they're that now actually, vintage. does that actually That's happen in... Does that process happen no, with ageism? No, but a lot of secondhand cars are sold with long warranties now. A lot of secondhand cars are really reliable. I mean, we're a Subaru family and, you know, we had our first Subaru for 12 years and we only got rid of it because we just, you know, eh, well, there's better ones around now. You know, we're now on our third Subaru and it's nine years old. It's not going anywhere. You know, once you have something reliable and good, but that second-hand Mercedes, you don't, you don't know what's under the cover. You don't know what's in the glove box. Oh, there's a, there's a five-year warranty. And some cars, old cars, particularly European cars, are sold with long warranties, yeah? So you don't know any of that. You don't know how good the engine is. You don't know if it starts first go. You don't know how powerful it is, how reliable it is, until you use it for a few weeks. So one of the solutions to ageism is mature age internships. What does that look like, Toby? Tell us more about mature age internships. That's a whole topic by itself, but a lot of your listeners will have seen the film called The Intern, Robert De Niro and what was her name, Anne Hathaway. Now it's a Hollywood film and, you know, he's charming and old and she's beautiful and young and she runs a, a startup. But that is just so real okay, mature age internships, which leads to another topic I was going to discuss later in this interview, Brendan, which is who are the most successful founders of startups? What age are they? Have a guess. The most successful age for startups. And who starts the most startups? Is it, which age starts the most startups? 40 to 50 range. Yeah, we had a clue from this conversation, didn't you? The Maybe. most successful. <laughs> it it yeah. seemed too who, obvious, but who, I've said it anyway. <laughs> ah, who, who? No, seriously, I, mean, I know I'm making a joke of this, but the great majority, I've been working the last few years in a startup hub, and I was surrounded by 20-somethings and early 30-somethings, surrounded by them. The most successful of all of those, as as is Silicon Valley has done a lot of research on this, by the way, the, the most successful was a 43-year-old American. And, you know, we're talking about a serious business now, okay? Now, not, not every successful business is founded by older people, but, you know, everyone believes the myth of that moronic man that started some big thing, Facebooky thing, I can't remember now. What's his name? Um, you know what a, I mean? A name that, we, we will not mention on this show. <laughs> not mention on air because he, because he's, Mr. He's Zuckerberg, isn't it? Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. <laughs> awful human being, right? But, you know, he's getting his comeuppance now, and I think Facebook is probably history. But that's okay. Young people do start successful startups, but the majority are started by people in their 40s who happen to have a couple of co-founders who work for them, essentially, because they're the boss, who are in their 20s and 30s. Okay, so maturity matters. And I've forgotten why I'm even talking about that, but let's get back to where we were. Does that aid in the, I guess, the scariness of employing an older person if we're saying that, you know, the most successful founders in startups are that 40 to 50? And if you're saying ageism is starting around that 40 mark, 
and people are aware of that and they think, well, you know, this person's going to shoot off anyway because they're going to go and start up something or whatever. Does it? Does that sort of help or hinder? No, not at all. There's only about one hundredth of one percent of people who will start a successful business. I mean, a startup. I'm talking about a tech startup now. I'm talking about a cloud-based tech startup, new way of doing things, something like Stable and Wise, completely turning recruitment on its head. You know, there's not many people like on, 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 who are not as stupid as me to give this a go because I'm not making any money yet, but I'm about to. But, you know, but you know, what can I say? No, it doesn't. And, you know, the myth, there are certain people, and this is really important, this point is, is really important. Unless you understand the people's unconscious drivers, you are liable to hire a 45-year-old who just wants your job and will not work for you, will not settle down and work for you. But they are so, not only do we look at unconscious drivers, I also have three or four interview questions that absolutely isolate these people. They don't get anywhere near any of my clients, nowhere, until they work out that the days of being the boss are probably over. And if they try and take over wherever they work, they're just going to lose that job anyway. They're not going to get it in the first place and they're going to lose it. So you really, really need to understand people's unconscious drivers. That's the secret source in, in my business. So back to more questions there before we get on to that. Well, just on that, what, what sort of, I guess, people or, or how often does that come about to stable and wise that you've got to maybe reset expectations and in saying that is it ever a case of you know that why can't they look at at future management positions or taking on roles why can't they be as aspirational as any age person they can they absolutely can but don't apply for a junior management job or or a junior job you know on the front desk expecting to move up quickly if you expect that, you won't do a good job at all. There's nothing blocking it. One of my mantras, okay, let, let, let me get, this is an important point. One of my mantras when I was in executive search, right, because I, I was a higher-end recruiter, right, for 19 years, and one of the mantras was don't hire anybody who can't settle into that job, who is overqualified and underpaid for what they could do. If you're overqualified and underpaid, you've got a problem. You've got a problem that's just, you know, or if you're going to hire them, be very clear with them that there's no promotion or no going up in the world until you have proved yourself and you've got to do really well in this job. But but I stopped all my clients, yeah, because they all said, oh, this guy's terrific. And I say, no, he's overqualified. He, he will expect too much too soon. And all the questions I've asked him to find that out show that. You know, so they said, but you presented him before. I said, yes, before I had interviewed him, I just talked about him briefly. Now I know this person. Forget it. Okay? Forget it. So if you've been an HR director or a marketing director in a medium-sized company and there's a medium-sized job for a junior marketer in a medium-sized company and you expect to become a marketing director again in a couple of years' time, you're not joining any business that I'm involved with. Toby, what's what's some of your own story of where you've, I'm assuming you've experienced ageism yourself. Can, can you share some of that story? Yes and no. Um, not 
too much, but a bit. Come on, you old bugger. Surely you've heard something. Yeah. <laughs> I was head of marketing in an investment bank and I was about 38 years old. Now, back back then, you know, marketing was a pretty, you know, it was a young person's game, still is largely. And I actually had a contract. Now that I'm being serious about this, I'm just trying to think back. But I had a contract, you know. So when I, I and I took a six-week holiday to France, came back, and um, I got sacked two days after I got back. And I, of course, spat chips, and I, they had to give me a huge payout even as a contractor. But I then entered recruitment because I started to struggle to find another job. And you know what? If you've got a big network of people and you can speak confidently, you're outgoing, every recruiter wants to hire you. And probably very few people in Sydney have a bigger network than I do, I would suggest. I mean, they're probably 50 people, 100 people, but my network about is just so diverse and so big, whether it's online or offline, yeah, and some very powerful people. And, of course, my network includes the little people, one way I used to find out who my clients would oh, never I'm the little people, mate. Thank you. Thank you for including yeah. me. <laughs> I wasn't looking at you. No. <laughs> I'm just, one of the tricks that I, and, and it's in my books on how to recruit people, when you're interviewing someone, blah, blah, they're so nice to you, always ask the person who greeted them and who said goodbye to them if you've got a, a reception desk or whatever. And you will get such a different impression of many people. Yeah. Anyone who is rude to so called little people is, in my opinion, unemployable and should never have a job anyway. They should all just bugger off. So that's, but that, that's one of my prejudices, by the way. If you want to know what, what, what my kids find objectionable, that's one of them. I can understand where you're coming from. Are there some other sort of tips or tricks you've learned in many years, you know, 20 years or so of recruitment where, and again, let, let's keep it to that sort of 40 plus, I suppose, ageism, but how do you cut through in the work that you do to identify those people that are, you know, maybe not quite not quite right, they, they wouldn't be great in any organisation? Oh, you just ask obvious questions. The most obvious one, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And, you know, and they go in boots and all, you know, uh, can you describe a team that you most enjoyed working in? And people that don't understand teams and being a member of a team can't even choose a team. They don't even understand what the question means. You know, they start talking about their ideal team that they manage. You know, there's all sorts of ways that I work it out. But that's that's getting very technical about recruiting. But really, my new tool is I don't interview anybody, my partner Dennis, who, who who's a psych, unless their psychological profile matches the profile of the employer's best people. So we benchmark their best people in, in whatever role it is, and then we go out and replicate them. But we don't even interview them. Everybody gets tested. It costs us nothing. We just send them a test. It comes back. We look at it. Yes, no, maybe. Okay. But we don't even send that out unless they have all the right skills for this job. But that's when we find out so much about people. Then it's just four or five questions. Um, that's more than that. There's about 20 questions, but I've, I've given you a couple. There's a whole bunch of questions that and we want to know whether they fit this culture, this team. So that may be a, a good lead into what I'd like to ask you now is like this ageism in the workplace, this topic we're, we're diving into today, why should leaders even care about a topic like this? Well, employers should care because they're not hiring the best, okay? Simple. 
if you've got over half of our community being discriminated against, there is a lot of talent in that community. And it is just a statistical fact that if you have a giant pool of people and they're being discriminated against, it doesn't matter whether it's women, people of color, uh, gender, uh, LGB, and so on. You know, it doesn't matter. In any pool that's being discriminated against, on average, there are people that are better than the general population. Yeah, just a fact. Because all the good people are being rejected along with all the bad people. It's just a fact. So you're cutting off your, I mean, the fact that employers don't know. I mean, I've had so many conversations with HR directors. They don't even know they're discriminating. They don't. They think we don't. We would never discriminate against someone old. Bullshit. All the research done by the Human Resources Institute, every institute in, in the world shows that they constantly do. There are companies who will blatantly admit to researchers, and we're talking we're talking 45% of organisations in Australia, will blatantly say we never hire anybody over the 50, age of 50. Never. We just won't hire them. Now, if that's not ageism, I don't know what is. But up on their walls as you walk into the foyer, you, you know what's there, don't you? All these things, you know, we never discriminate. We are an equal opportunity employer. What a load of codswallop. I mean, it's just embarrassing. They should be embarrassed, but they're not because they don't know. They're ignorant of, of the fact that they actually do discriminate. By the way, I've got a really bad chair because I've, because I've bunged pillows underneath me to get me up to more of the eye contact with the camera. Um, and it well, as long as you don't fall down. back or fall on the floor, we should be okay, right? No, I will not do that. So the question is why should they care? Well, employers should care because they're not hiring the best, as simple as that, okay? But governments should care because it's costing our society well over $60 billion a year, well over now, Deloitte's have done this research, United Nations have done this research about Australia and other countries. It is massive. It makes, makes gender discrimination look minuscule because when you add in older women, you know, and because they, um, they're even worse. So, and we don't have that many people of colour that cause grief. Oh, we have anti-Muslim prejudice, anti-religion. I mean, we have a lot of that, I know. But it's still minor compared to ageism. Can you give some context around that $60 billion? Like, how, how is a figure like that come up with? You'd have to look at Deloitte's research. It goes back. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff. People are retiring too early, okay, and if you retire because they're forced to retire, they can't find a job. Now, we have, if you start digging in this area, you'll find so many thousands of people who are prepared to say online with their names attached that they've applied for over 100 jobs and just been ignored. Yeah. So once that, that's happened for a couple of years, they withdraw from the workforce. So now they're no longer paying tax and they're getting, they're getting all the support benefits of retirement and unemployment benefits, whatever. Unemployment, the average time spent unemployed starts to rise at 40. Well, that's unemployment benefits are hugely expensive, hugely. It's tragic. So that's, okay, what else is there? There's, um, there's more... People who cannot find work get sicker. Their health suffers. They get depressed. So mental health issues are vital. Ageism, and look, there's a couple more, but I can't remember them right now, Brendan, because I'm too old, okay? I just, forget, <laughs> I, I, just forget, I just forget all the facts. But also, you've got to remember, and I said it before and I'll say it again, 
that the inconsistency around when ageism starts makes the statistics incre- incredibly complicated. Now, we are doing, a, we, I've, I've decided, and I've, I decided this a few days ago when I was thinking about this, uh, this interview, because I'm doing a couple more next week as well, week after next, and it's like we need to do a, a bibliography of all the research around the world, and it comes from, and all of ours comes from the English-speaking world, of course, because that's, that's what I'm searching in English. But I also know from my Swedish friends and other Scandinavian friends that it is an epidemic over there as well. The only place where ageism is not quite so severe is in the countries that venerate the old. But they venerate them, but they don't want to hire them. <laughs> so, you know, that's sort of that, that's Japan as well and everything else. If you lose your job, you know, after 30 years in one company, God forbid you're going to find another one of a similar level. The real cost as well is not just unemployment, it's underemployment and wrongful employment. A lot of my friends, I mean, I had a friend who ran an investment bank 20 years ago, ended up working in a video shop at King's Cross at night. I mean, you know, he could not even get a job as a junior investment banker, of course. I mean, I now now know why, but that was 30 years ago, actually. And, you know, he... Nice bloke. He ended up getting a job eventually, administering a branch office of a company from Melbourne. Like he was so much more capable than that. It's it's wrongful employment. We have engineers, we have uh, nuclear physicists, etc. Heads of HR driving Ubers. What do us old people? Because I'm forty plus. You're forty plus. What what is a what do us old people bring to the table? Ah, wisdom. Why do you think we call this business stable and wise? We bring a number of things. We bring wisdom, resilience, stability. We stay five times longer in jobs than the people in their 20s and 30s. Five times longer. What do we bring? Continuity. Now, anyone working in HR, and I'm doing a talk to a whole bunch of HR managers up in Queensland next week, and the costs of staff turnover if you think an older person may be not so good at technology well you're probably wrong because they they actually are but we'll come, we haven't even mentioned the four myths yet have we but they're myths and false beliefs but if you lose someone in your job then you have it's somewhere between four and 18 months of their salary is what it costs to replace them four to 18 months that's massive. But that includes the fact that they were the job was empty for a while and then you've got the recruitment fees and all the time to interview them and so on and so forth. There's huge costs involved. And then, of course, they come on board and they don't know your culture, your processes, anything, and it takes them another you know, few months to learn that. Depending on the seniority, it's four to 18 months and nobody will argue with those figures, nobody in, in the human resources world. It's absolutely categorically true. So if you're looking at relative productivity, if someone stays five times longer, boy, their productivity is so much higher. You've mentioned HR managers and you're up in Queensland, my home state, next week. Enjoy your time up there, mate. Um, I'm sure the Queenslanders will look after you, buddy. Well, they will. I'm speaking to the local government association, HR managers. and no, It's a webinar as well. I offered to come up, but they said no because that was – when it was scheduled, it was back in COVID, and I thought, well, I don't really need to go anyway. I've done a lot of talks in Queensland. I'm always hosted very well, can I say. 
Very good to hear. Very good to hear. I just, seeing as how you mentioned HR, you mentioned the four myths. We'll, we'll go into those. I'll ask you about those soon. But HR managers, I guess the the question I have is around that recruitment side. I'm not saying I agree with this, but historically, certainly in the last 25, 30 years maybe, recruitment seems to have rested as a responsibility within HR. So if ageism is a problem and you're saying it is, and there's research, lots of research by you know very credible organisations as well as yourself backing that up. What the hell are HR doing? How are they helping? This is the thing. First of all, HR can never understand every single job in the business. They just can't. It's not possible. What they know, what they do, is follow good process. That's what they think they do, right? They follow good process, and that process does not solve the problem. Because I'm about to say why. They are also told all the time by the line managers, typically the people doing the recruiting are in their 30s and 40s, yeah, typically, and they will say things like, look, someone someone in their 20s and 30s is most likely to fit our culture. We're a pretty young team. Of course, we'll look at other people. Now, what does the HR manager know? They know full well that they put forward, just like when I put forward the final over 40-year-old to my fund management CEO, he just said, Toby, enough. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to look at any of them. Stop sending them to me. Did I stop? Of course I did. I mean, I had a business to run and I was wasting the time of my candidates as well as my own. It wasn't just, and my clients, what was the point? So HR will not put forward candidates that they know that their racist, sexist person will will hire. By the way, probably the only ones that they will put forward, and this is my sort of this is sort of my standard running joke. It's not a, it's not a joke. It's a very serious thing. But a, a recruitment agency will send to an employer a ninety year old black woman in a wheelchair, and she'll arrive being pushed by her wife, you know, and will openly admit that that she's that she's a lesbian. Now that why would they hire someone like? Why would they present someone like? And why would they be hired? because it ticks every single box. So they cover five EEO things in one go. And I know I've had the conversation where, we, where we've ticked off three with an employer. So let's not, let's not pretend that HR don't know, but they're not, they're not the ones that really understand what this job needs. They also use Mickey Mouse psych tests at the end, which it's too late. It's too late. Once you've gone to all that trouble, you've got a short list. You know, I used to work for Macquarie Bank and they used to do testing at the end. Um, you know, eventually I got them to stop, the, or the ones that kept working with me, I got them to stop. I said, don't do it. You're just wasting everybody's time. Yeah, I hear you, mate. There's, uh, there's a lot of box ticking going on in, uh, in various things, but particularly HR in my view. But again, that's a, that's a whole other topic, isn't it? So, and you've, it sounds like you've had some ex- extensive experience in it. Our interview will continue after this. An expression of gratitude or reciprocity, no matter how large or small, is an important part of a healthy culture and relationships. Our friends at Jangler have a great app that allows you to send a gift card with either a personal video, voice message, or funny gif. You can send it right away or schedule to send on the perfect day and time. So it can be something you set and forget. It's perfect for clients, employees, birthdays, and any celebration where you can't be there in person. It's quick, easy to send, and you can spend instantly in-store or online when you receive a card. Check it out at www. 
jangler.com.au. That's www.jangler.com.au. Mate, you referred to the four myths, or you mentioned there's four myths. So what are these four? Because I don't know what the four myths are. I've been waiting to hear it. So right. what are the four myths of ages? Well, they're, they're myths. They're false beliefs, okay? They're prejudices. They're false beliefs. Okay, but let's get to the first one, health. You know, that, that the older people will take more sick days. Absolute. Now, by the way, all the four myths, the research is overwhelming that they're all wrong. Okay? Overwhelming. So don't, I mean, I can't share that with you today, but I might share it with you later on in, in a few weeks because well, we're doing a massive bibliography with online links because, yeah, people kept saying, well, you keep saying this, Toby, where are they all? So I'd send them a couple of things and I thought, that not enough. I need to send them 50 to 100 serious surveys, research. Yeah? Okay, good. First one, health, that we take more sick days. No, we take less than half. Over 50s take less than half the sick days of the 20-somethings. And why? Well, partly because sick days are often voluntary with um, with the young. I mean, you know, you've had a big night out, you're a bit hungover, you don't feel too good, you don't go to work. That's, look, I don't think anyone over 40 is going to shake, the, any, any parent is going to shake their heads with that. Um, I can remember my kids when they first started work. Can I tell you a very short story about that yeah. in my own experience? So I, my parents raised me fantastically well and a, a good work ethic. I hardly ever took a sick day. Did. Absolutely. <laughs> and even for my 21st, which ended up, the actual day ended up on a Monday night from memory, and we were out until 6.30 the next morning, got home at 6.30 and went straight to work from that. So thankfully we didn't have drug and alcohol testing back in the day. I was just in an office. but So I made it, I went to work, but I did fall asleep on the toilet at lunchtime and they had to come and wake me up. <laughs> it sounds like a Japanese salary workers that used to go to, go to work and just fall asleep because <laughs> they just couldn't stay awake any longer. Absolutely. So I was only 21, but I, I didn't take the sick, I didn't take the easy road. I went straight through and back into work, mate. Fantastic. Now, listen, I'm just going to have a quick look for some magnesium tablets. I've got some here somewhere. Why? Because I play so much tennis and I got a big comp this afternoon and I overdid it this week with training for the and lessons. I had three lessons in one week. Anyway, enough of that. I love the magnesium tablets. Good on you. Have one each day myself. You've got to have them. And I, I can't quite see them I supply in the studio, but I'll find them. Um, Again, going back to the chair, don't fall off the chair like you've fainted because you've got reduced magnesium or something. <laughs> okay, but, but, but I keep talking while I look. So the over, four, over 30s, particularly in the times of COVID, have higher, you know, they have higher stress levels, yeah? They, um, more, they have higher rates of depression, absolutely, okay? Of course they do. They also, so their health generally isn't good. They are worse sleepers. So they not only have fake sickies, they actually are less healthy. They don't look after themselves as well. Us oldies know we have to look after ourselves, and I'm including you in that because if you're over 40, you're an oldie, you have to look after yourself. You can't go on. You've got to take magnesium tablets, right? Absolutely, mate. I have, have you tried that Voost? I just get those Voost tablets, put it in some water every morning and really good. I take those when I'm playing on a hot day, um, yeah, in fact, Tonight's game, if it doesn't rain again, will be will be a good three hour marathon. So I 
I'm going to need something like that. Like we might have to try and get this episode sponsored by Voost. What do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, go. Uh, all right. The second big myth, we are technophobes. We don't understand technology. But i got to say a couple of – before I say why this is rubbish, i got to say a couple of things. Technology is clearly vital in virtually every job in the world now, apart from manual factory and labouring works. Technology is vital. Secondly, the young are really good at certain technologies. Think, think um, Facebook, iPhones, TikTok, and so on. But when it comes to work technology, the stuff that makes businesses run, governments run, etc., we are streets ahead. Yeah, you're thinking database, you're thinking project management software, you're thinking almost everything: spreadsheets, uh, formatting Google or Microsoft documents. You know, high-level formatting. The young have no idea. The young, the number of young people I've hired over the years, and there's quite a few of these, who would give me a spreadsheet. I'd say, go and put these figures in and, and, and let's look at the results. And I'd, I'd change a couple of their numbers and I'd notice suddenly that the bottom total didn't change. They had typed, they'd added it up on a calculator and typed the form, typed the, the answer in. And I often, first time that happened, I didn't notice it until too late and I was talking to a client. And um, embarrassing, yeah? But... After that, I checked every single total. Okay, so technology, business technologies. We are the fastest growing users of IT. We've had to be. You know, we have to be to keep our jobs. We can't just wing it like like young people do. And, you know, I've always got two or three young interns in my business. And can I say how pretty useless they are? They want to... I actually tell them this, by the way, regularly. But because, you know, they, they don't really want to learn. So I make sure they do it if they're working with me, okay? We have some long-term interns with us. They have to learn. So we are adaptive. You know, we cope better with stress. We cope better with learning. So that's the technology. Yeah, that's the second big myth. And you know what? Nearly every one of my friends in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, all of them believe they're useless at technology, all of them, because I think you said this earlier before this call started, the biggest problem with ageism is it's believed by everybody. But I'll come to that in a second. Why does it persist? Because the old believe it as well. Third, our wages are higher. We cost more. Absolute rubbish. Not when greater experience, skills and productivity are taken into account. Experience plus skills plus stability plus subconscious strengths equals high productivity, okay? That's really the reality of, um, so we don't cost more. You know, Biden, Trump, and Pelosi, you know, love them or hate them, they are still highly functioning people, aren't they? And they're not exactly young. They make me look young, okay? So that's, you know. I'd question one out of the three. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh Trump. <laughs> <laughs> You're not anti-Trump, are you? Look, he's still highly functioning. I'm not anti-Trump. I'm not. I'm just talking about what we see through the media, and I'd have to say that uh, probably one of the three is not as high functioning as what they need to be, and that's probably the most dangerous at the moment. Oh, it could be Biden. I agree. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But that doesn't matter, guys. It doesn't matter what they are. Still, they're still in high-powered jobs. They're still functioning pretty well. Maybe not at the level of president or, or speaker of the house, but they are. They are there. 
And, you know, so we can we can say we don't want to hire anyone over 40, but then how come the presidents and the speaker are all over 70? Uh, is Pelosi 80 yet? I don't know. That's fine. I have no idea. No, I'm not sure. So, so that they're less likely to change She's jobs. She's over 40, so she definitely fits the ageism category. <laughs> fits the ageism. But the final myth, and I'll keep this short, or delusion I would call it, is the mature are less intelligent, innovative and creative, that we lose our powers as we get older. No, overwhelming research, all those powers are unchanged. The young think we are losing it, to use an Australian expression, because we can't recall names quickly. We forgot what we were talking about a minute ago, and I've done that twice on this call. That's just the way it is. So anyone young joining me, I tell them up front, expect it and don't think I'm stupid because I can't remember your name, okay? That's really important. Okay. So who's responsible for ageism? You want me to talk about that? So I don't want to that I, now? I do, but I want to ask you, why, why, are, you interview, why are you employing young interns and not 40-plus? Uh, Ah, I've got both. My business partners are all, God, how old are they? They're all 60 plus. All right. Yeah. I'll let you okay. off the hook. But I had to, when my seed funding got cancelled beginning of 2020, you know, we signed our terms of agreement. I don't know if you've ever raised seed capital. We had a big signing ceremony on a Friday. And that night on the news, all those young people at Bondi were saying, oh, look, we, we have to leave the beach, but we're just going to go to our, our place and have a house party. Well, by Monday morning, New South Wales was in lockdown. The phone calls from the 2C Capital people came in. Can we put this on hold? So I didn't, luckily, because I would have wasted that C Capital, okay? I would have wasted it uh, because I didn't really understand what ageism, why it persisted, what caused it. And I didn't realise how how nobody believes it's real. So let, let's go into that area now. This you, you referred to before, like who who is responsible? Where does responsibility sit in this? Is there's always two sides to the coin, right? Everybody's responsible. That's the point. Everybody except recruitment agents, and that and that, that goes against everyone's beliefs. I know because, but you know, because I I've done research on this, and most people who who couldn't get a job believe that it was the agents, the young, because they're all young. They all they're all backpackers from England, or they used to be. Now there's a there's a few less of those, but they're still young pommies. And we used to call them Barrow Boys and Girls because that, that's what they were. You know, they were hard-selling people. Anyway, but it's not their fault. Who's responsible? Employers, governments, and even the over-40s, everyone. Why aren't recruitment ages, agencies responsible? Because we discussed it before. Their job is to give you what you want, what you said you want. It's not their fault. So they'll give you that 90-year-old, you know, in a wheelchair. Not a problem. They just deliver it. If there's a $10,000 fee attached to that 90-year-old or more commonly $15,000, they'll just they'll send her in in her wheelchair, okay? That, that's done. No, no question. I've presented at lots of recruitment conferences over the years in Canada, Florida, Columbus, Ohio, where else, Singapore, and recruiters are in the room. None of them will deny that they would do that. None of them. They know. We all know. We give employers what they say they want, what we know they will hire. If they say, I'm not going to hire anyone in, over 40, you're wasting everybody's time presenting them. Why do that? Yeah, you've got to make a living. You've got to feed the, feed the kids, right? I had to face that. He's my best client. And, and by the way, he's a very good friend as well. He, you know, he's just ignorant about age. So that's not his fault. 
And I guess at the end of the day, just expanding on that point, Toby, that, you know, even I guess taking a stand on that and saying, well, you know, this is what I believe in or whatever, but you probably wouldn't have a recruitment business for too long because they'll just go to the next recruitment agent that will fill what they need and what they're being asked to do. Look, very few still today work exclusively like I used to, okay? Most of them, you know, the big corporations just send out a job to, to their, what they call their preferred suppliers, three recruitment agencies get it. The first one to get the first one to get the resume in gets gets the placement. Even if all three present the same person, the first one to do it gets the job. It is the dumbest process I've ever heard. It is so stupid. But I can't go into that because I've written a book on this, so it's got to be. There's a lot to say about it. But here we go. Why does it persist? Well, there are two main ones because basically governments and a lot of employers believe that. If you can't find a job, it's your personal responsibility to fix it, okay? So get more training, uh, get more positive, build your networks, do whatever, yeah? Um, Lose weight, get fit, yeah? All that sort of stuff. You are told that by every single company, and it's just rubbish, okay? Personal responsibility is, of course, it's important. Of course, you've got to have the right skills, but that doesn't solve it. How can you show you're positive and fit and healthy if you can't even get an interview, you know, after 100 applications, 200 applications, not a single interview? I think you're insane, by the way, if it gets to 200 and you haven't stopped. That's the definition of insanity, surely. But, you know, people do it. But the other thing is this. The government is spending so much money on a couple of schemes that are just like pouring money down a plug hole. One of those, which I absolutely, one of them is an upskilling program, and that's sort of okay, but all it does is make everybody frustrated because they still can't find a job at the end of it. Now, I present on some of those programs, so I understand, and I, and I got feedback from the people about, you know, how useful they found the course they were on. The government's paying for it, right? Um, the answer is useless, absolutely useless. But the other scheme is even worse. This is the one where the government just doesn't understand the recruitment industry. They don't understand the 90-year-old in the wheelchair. They just don't get it. That the agents will put forward anybody that they think can get a job. So what, the, what, what happens? What they did, they started a scheme that they'll pay the agencies $300 or $400 to register people who are unemployed. Yeah, job seekers. And a lot of those people are old, of course, because they're overrepresented in the uh, thing. They pay that money and then they get a sliding scale of fees depending on how disadvantaged those people are. No, no mention of age, by the way, just, just you know, skills and whatever, whatever. Yeah. You know, if you're Aboriginal, you get, you, get the, you get the top marks and so on. Those are top fees. But they're also people that are basically unemployable because of prejudice. So what do the agencies do? Well, they set up, there's hundreds of these offices all over Australia now. They're in the suburbs. You know, they're upstairs in a suburban office, very cheap rent. They've got a receptionist who's actually a, a sort of a, a lowly paid recruiter who collects the, the information, gives them a whole verbiage about how they're going to help them find a job, and then they make one phone call later, and that's it. So you take your pocket your three or four hundred dollars. It's only taken you maybe 10, 20 minutes of work. So it's, it's good return. And that's it. Nothing else happens. Why would they present someone who is virtually unemployable? But they also don't have the jobs. How are they going to get the jobs? That's crazy. I've never I've never heard of that scheme. What what's that scheme called? Yeah, it's called the oh, 
uh, employment job, the employment network or something. Again, I can't remember these sort of names. They're all they're also bland and stupid. It's had two iterations of names. But our treasurer, who at 49.50 is the ultimate believer being on the right of politics in personal responsibility. He's the ultimate. Yeah, which is, and I, but I also agree with that concept. Just it doesn't apply here. He doesn't understand recruitment. He has no idea. Now we're talking many billions of dollars here for these two schemes. We're not talking nothing, okay? And it's a complete and utter failure. And he just renewed the scheme because he was under political pressure last year. He renewed it early last year, I think, because under pressure to be seen to be doing something because of all the employment back then. So you've mentioned a couple of schemes and stuff. In your humble opinion, what should governments be doing to help with this ageism crisis? It is humble, only because no one's listening to me at the moment in government. I'm trying very hard to get appointments with government. They just don't care. They're totally focused on getting re-elected, both of them, state and federal, all of them. Now, all they care about is, will this get me re-elected? Is it part of our thing? Oh, you, you, you want to cancel a program? Ooh, no, no, that's, that's going to be tricky. So what should they do? It's really simple. They need to sponsor an online training program that has all of this stuff with constant webinars. They could sponsor what I do, but it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't matter. Someone who's really good at training people on how to get a job and training employers on how to hire older people, well, you know, that's simple. That's very low cost. That might be $1 billion a year, might, max, right, as opposed to $10, $20 billion a year. And it's very hard to get the real numbers from the government, but but it's bloody expensive. What else should they do? Um, Start spreading the word that ageism is just dumb, that it's costing us $60 to $100 billion every year here in Australia. Yeah, it's damaging our employers. It's, and most importantly, nearly everybody will suffer at some point in their lives from employment ageism. They'll be driving Ubers rather than working in banking. So that's what they should do. When we talk about change, Toby, and you know, change is something that you're talking about change, changing mindsets, changing sort of um, beliefs, and and you know all these all these things in the, within the mind. For something to change, there always needs to be that sort of you know crisis or, or you know burning bridge is a, a term that gets used to be you know what's the burning bridge to drive this change? And we look at the unemployment rate, uh, which is very low. I think it's I think it was four point eight on the last. Um, announcement. It's and coming down. Well, it's they're even have saying, a three in front of yeah, they're even saying it's going to go down around the three something. So, is this you know, from life's about timing, right? But if you put that in perspective, is this a case where actually people, employers, leaders in organisations, they may not find that they've got a choice. They actually have to get over this ageism barrier and start to look at forty plus people because if they don't, they're just going to end up with nobody. There's not enough people in the workforce. Well, there is, there is. Unemployment's falling, that's true, and there's, and therefore there's skill shortages. There are major pockets of skill shortages all over the country, yeah? For, for worse in some states than others, worse in some professions and industries than others, but there are major skill shortages. So, but there's no burning, there's no burning bridge. See, I can go to a company and say, well, you, you can't hire these people, and they go, yeah, because there aren't any. And I say, well, yes, there are. But that education process is taking an awfully long time, okay? I'm, I'm getting there, and Dennis is getting there, my partner, and now we finally have this tool 
that will prove that the older are actually better than the young because of all the things that matter in their subconscious that drives productivity. But until we can provide that proof, now we're talking to some very large companies and hopefully we'll have a trial shortly. Well, not a trial, but, but, but active with large companies because little ones don't have any impact, you know. I mean, it doesn't get very far. I'm really hoping that Atlassian will be one of those companies, really hoping. But they're the most ageist bunch of people you're ever likely to meet. I mean, I, I mean I've met Cannon Brooks and I, and I know his father, you know, but really. What makes you say that? Have you, have you got an example that you can share? He was so successful, so young. He just believes young, the young are great. He believes you cannot be a good coder, which is what the biggest shortage of skills is, is around coding, right? Coding drives the startup economy. It drives the cloud. Coding is, is engineers, they're called in, in the business, but they're coders, right? And he doesn't believe that, or his, and his, his staff don't believe that someone in their 50s can actually hire great coders. Now, a friend of mine is doing a startup in artificial intelligence, and it's his second startup. He got the first one listed. He made, he made a, you know, a couple of million. He, you know, he's a happy boy. And now he's doing another one in artificial intelligence. And he rehired someone who was 52 who was his previous coder on the first startup. And he had him for two years before he realised the guy was a little bit negative about his company. But for two years, he was the best coder in the business. But then he stopped seeing solutions because he thought the AI was going to fail. But that, that look, forget the story. The point was he was a great coder, even though he was 52 when he was rehired, okay? Now, that's the only personal story I know about coders. Yeah, if you're good at it, you're good at it. I'm really good at database manipulation and whatever, whatever, you know, and I'm turning 70. That, you know, do I become worse at that when I get older? No. I want to go back to the point of personal responsibility because you mentioned it a couple of times in the in the context of you know government and and right thinking that you and I spoke before we hit the record button. If we look at personal responsibility, what personal responsibility does the people that fall into these age categories, you know, the forty plus, need to take on? And, and again, I, I just because you made a couple of comments during the interview, and, and I get the comment, they're just sort of tongue in cheek sort of stuff. But you know, you mentioned you know, it's an old man's game, it's a young man's game, uh, and you know, we, we talked offline about you can't teach an old doc new tricks and all this sort of like. How does the personal responsibility come in in helping these people? We talked about get- you can teach old dogs new tricks. Yes, exactly. We believe you can teach an old new dog, but we yeah, talked about sorry, the saying you, you, you can't. You made it sound like I didn't believe it. No, no, no. You. <laughs> I'm not trying to discredit you completely, right? No, 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 no. I get it. I get it. Sorry. I was, just, I was, I was joking. I, I, I appreciate that. You can teach an old dog new tricks. I mean, I, I think I talked to you about my tennis. I learn a new shot at least every couple of months, at least, because I play comp. And if you, if you only have three or four good shots – you are not going to win comp. You have to have at least 10, 12 good shots, okay? And you don't use them all the time, but they're, but they're in your, you're in your armory. So you can teach old dogs. But what was the question again? What was the... Just why, regard, yeah, the personal responsibility. You've got to take personal responsibility. Of course you do. It's your life. But the most important thing, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to learn skills. If your skills, if you really can't work spreadsheets or databases or whatever it is that you need for your job, you have to go off and get courses and learn. The government pays for all of it. It's free. 
It's just your time. You have to do all that. If you're a fat, lazy person, go out and get fit. Be a fit, fat person. That's fine. But don't be an unfit, fat person because you come across as unfit. You've got to be fit. Okay. Uh, what else? You've got to be positive. You've got to build your networks. But here's the biggest thing. Here's the most important thing of all. If you want to take personal responsibility, understand that it's not your fault. It's not your personal problems that are causing this problem. It is the recruitment industry. It is the recruitment system. It is designed to make you fail. Not deliberately, it just is. So until the government understands that and employers understand that, we will not solve it. You've got to have the right skills. You've got to be healthy. You've got to be energetic. You've got to have some networks. It's still your best way to find a job, whether you're old or young, yeah, through your networks, okay? One reason why I was a good headhunter was because I had giant networks and I could help people connect and, and do stuff. And I could check with them who was good and who was bad and whatever, whatever. Anyway, all good. Now, why do they break the law? Why does nearly every employer constantly break the law and not know they do it? I mean, it's all these secret preferences. I think we touched on it briefly before. The person most likely to succeed. So there's the HR manager being briefed by, and, th and by the way, this is another reason why HR shouldn't be involved. They don't have the recruitment agency in the room usually when they're being briefed. So it's Chinese whispers now. It's gone from the, the head of the department or the head of the company to HR to the recruiter and then across to the, to the candidate. By the time it gets to the candidate, you, know, you, you can almost guarantee the job is nothing like what the hiring manager thought it was. It doesn't matter often, but it often, sometimes it really matters. Anyway, so there's secret preferences. The person most likely to succeed is in their 20s and 30s. And to be honest, you know, we're a very Anglo, Anglo department here. And, mate, I hate to say it, but we're nearly all women. We need a woman for this job. Now, that's, that, by the way, is increasingly common. Men just probably won't cut it. Now, these are all the secret preferences that are all illegal, okay? It's breaking the law. So the frontline recruiters, but also the frontline recruiters are nearly all under 40, nearly all of them, well, under 45, certainly. That's whether they work for the corporation or the government or they work for the agency. They're all under 40, yeah? So what, I, what does that mean? Well, let me have a look at this. There's no way to prove they broke the law. When I first started talking about this, I ran a massive seminar on this along with the Human Resources Institute back in 2009, I think, 2010. Anyway, and my big theme was we just drove discrimination underground. We banned discrimination. We banned the symptom, recruitment, advertising. You couldn't specify gender, age, color, whatever. You couldn't discriminate in public. All we did was drive it underground where no one can prove it. The only way to prove it is to get that employer to release every single resume, which is a, a real problem because they're meant to be confidential. You can't prove it. So all they have to say is no. We put forward the best candidates or we hired the best candidate. That's it. Let's break that up into, into the bucket. So what are solutions, you know, what are suggested solutions for you from a workplace perspective? You know, people in workplaces actually recruiting, not, not the recruiters, but, you know, the HR people, the leaders in the business, what do they need to do? What are some, what are some solutions from, that they need to look at? They need, they need to research, they need to discover that it is a, a serious problem. 
and they are simply wrong, that their organizations are discriminating, yeah, despite all the, the you know, the, the words on, on the walls and on the websites. It's all, it's just rubbish. It's not true. And they need to understand that. And if they don't understand it, it doesn't matter what anyone says, no. I mean, I've had them, I've, I've been shown the door by an HR manager who was actually a bit of a friend of mine. And she said, Toby, you're wasting our time. We don't discriminate here. Well, the fact is they did significantly discriminate. But, you know, it took a while for her to understand that. But, you know, but what can we do? What can they do? They've got to understand that there is a problem. And then they've got to understand that there are some solutions. Okay. So the very first one is absolutely critical. I think you and I talked about the intern, the movie. Was that online or was that before we came on? No, that you mentioned it earlier in the interview, actually. Okay. Great so movie. Mature, yeah, it's a good movie. Oh, it's Hollywood. You know, I don't like Hollywood usually, but that one I had to watch because it was in my field. Mature I'm going to have to watch this movie tonight now. You, you've just picked our Friday night movie night. <laughs> By the way, it's a lot of fun. Anne Hathaway is, of course, dropped she's in. She's very good. Gorgeous. Yeah, and she's a good actor. Very. And so, so is Robert De Niro. I mean, it's a great cast. The script's just a little bit childish for someone who's in recruitment. But anyway, that's, just, <laughs> that's fine. Um Mature age internships are a vital part of the solution, both for candidates and for employers. The candidate gets to show what they're good at, prove it. And, you know, we're offering those four to six weeks. You just pay them the minimum wage, 20 bucks an hour, okay? And there's no contract. You don't have to hire them. But no one's going to do it unless they think you will hire them. It was a good chance. But it's very clear in writing that you will not be, there's no guarantee of a position. So it's really about suck it and see. Almost no Australian companies, and I, I don't think any do, by the way, but I can say almost none offer mature age internships. All of the internships are for young people. They do have what's called reverse mentoring, where their existing staff mentor young staff and vice versa, which is, again, vital, but it doesn't solve recruitment. Okay. They need to learn how the industry works so that they can stop, candidates can stop blaming themselves. There is nothing more depressing. This, I blamed myself that I couldn't find a job when I got retrenched from, as a contractor, but I was retrenched, as, as a marketing manager. The investment bank was in serious trouble, by the way. And so, you know, they needed the money. But, you know, at the end of the day, I blame myself when I couldn't find another job quickly and just took on recruitment as a temporary thing and stayed for 19 years like an idiot. But I did because I actually enjoyed a lot of it and I wrote books about it. I constantly tried to change the industry and be different, but I didn't make nearly as much money as some of those shonks that actually ran the big firms. But, you know, that's life. Um, who are just salespeople, yeah? Brendan, I mean, I, I, I don't disparage salespeople, but I do disparage it when it's about people's lives, Okay. And they damage people's lives. They just sell bodies. They damage business. They damage people's lives. Okay. Mm, For employers. Hmm? It is scary. No, it absolutely is. And I won't mention any names, but there's a couple. There's one guy, he's Australian, and he became the most successful recruiter in the world. Yeah, nice guy. He found me a job once in, in an investment bank. Are okay, you telling me you've that, sold your body? Well, it was a good job for me. <laughs> no, no, it was perfect. But, you know, he interviewed me for five minutes. And decided I was perfect. Uh, I liked you after five minutes. Oh, no, 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 that's fine. But but was I the right person for a very complex investment banking job? You know, Different decision, isn't it? (laughs) Difficult, yeah. So for employers, okay, 
you've got to find a recruiter, and I believe there's only one in Australia, and that's that's me and Dennis, Dennis and I, who gets the, the subconscious strengths, who never interviews anybody unless they not only have the skills, but we know that they have subconscious strengths. And it's because Dennis owns this software. And, you know, all the other companies, Macquarie Bank and all those ones that use testing, and there's lots of them, they have to pay a lot of money for every test. You know, it's a couple of, you know, it's thousand dollars a test or something and they've got to write reports and everything else it's a lot of money whereas dennis it's and i it's nothing so we've got 50 applicants 25 have the skills we test all 25 we look at five or ten of them have the right strengths quick phone interview narrow it down and then we have long interviews with three or four of them the client only sees a couple and because we're doing so many less interviews, so many much less work, our fees are less than half what others charge. We have to start changing it because go back to that car. The older worker has these hidden strengths, but you don't know what they are. So what we first do, what an employer must do, and they can use other tests to do this. They don't have to use us, right? And that's absolutely. You can you benchmark your best people. So our first question to you, Brendan, if you if you had a lot of staff, will be, okay, you want us to hire you a new internal salesperson. How many have you got? Okay, you've got about 10. Okay, which of the which of those are your very best? And then we test those, we profile those people, and then we benchmark them, okay? And we profile the boss as well, the, the sales manager. So now we're looking, we go out and we basically replicate the best. Simple. And that is so simple. We, we've, we rarely have to interview 10 people because we can tell very quickly who will complement the existing team and who is at least as good as the existing team. And you know what? Mature age workers always test better. One of the key things for, and, and for a sales job, what's one of the big things for a sales job, do you think? What would it be? High energy, yeah, but what else? I, I think personal connection. Being able to connect yeah, with people. Critical, great, but that but another one is they take rejection well and they bounce back. They're resilient. Now the mature are much more resilient than the young. They don't take it so personally, but certain but there's certain psychology types always. I take it personally. That's why I'm a shit salesman. Okay. I'm not a good salesman. But I take it less personally than I used to, but I still take it personally. Yeah. Um, you don't use me. God, really? Why not? You know, we're terrific. Um, anyway, but they're resilient and their personality profile, but they, if they're older, they tend to be a lot more resilient. They also stay around for longer. And if you're in a sales job and you're doing well, you want, to, you want those people to stick with you. Get rid of them, of course, if they're not doing well. But if they're, if they're doing well, you, know, you don't want them to walk out the door in three years' time. That's what happens with young people. They walk out the door in 18 months to two and a half years. Yeah? Good. What else is there? Oh, the opportunities, right. And one of my favourite lines is, why the fish employers reject makes them the best. Okay. And we've talked That's about That's the John West line, any, isn't it? It's the John West line. So they're rejecting them so that pool of older people is full of good fish. I think we discussed that earlier. I think that's absolutely critical for this whole thing. If you accept that and understand and go, okay, well, Maybe they're a bit old, maybe they look a bit rusty like the old car, but maybe they're the best, okay, because they're in that pool and there's more of them. The good ones are keen to upskill and keep going and they stay with you much longer. That's it. 
What more do you want from an employee? Yeah, someone that wants to learn, that fits the team. And by the way, we this testing we do is also about team building. We want to not only replicate your best, we want to find those that will complement your best with their various skills. So are they more of an auditory person, more of a visual, more of a kind of aesthetic, um, whatever it might be? Did they earn money? By the way, I'll ask you this question. Did you earn money before you were 10 years old? Did you have a job? I think I did some Bobber job stuff, old cub scout things, but I don't, I don't think that was me earning money. I think that was money for fundraising or something. Oh, it was for me because I used to pocket it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I to, Maybe I, I did. I can't remember. I thought it was for fundraising, but anyway, Bobber job's about the only thing I could remember prior to 10 years old. Good. That's just one of the things that, that if people would did that, I mean, I used to make very bad kites when I was living up in um, up in Kuala Lumpur. You know, very bad kites. And but I sold them to all my friends, and the parents used to roll their eyes and hand over the money. Bob, a job for me was I worked. I did a lot more than most people, and I figured because I was cleaning a lot more cars and doing stuff that. You know, I deserved a little bit of commission on the way through. Now, that's totally unethical and immoral, and um, I'll, I'll deny I ever did that um, if it comes to that. You just said on the world stage, Toby. <laughs> on the world stage. <laughs> what was your warranty like on your kites? Uh, nothing. <laughs> there, was, there was zero warranty. I only sold four or five. But I also, I was in boarding school, and I sold toast. I sold a lot of toast. I bought a toaster. Entrepreneurial mindset from way back. Correct. Every day they would give us these old crusts, right? The food was disgusting, you know, and a big tin of disgusting jam. And we could get as many crusts and jam as we wanted. So all I did was buy a half pound of butter and my parents gave me a toaster for Christmas and I would sell it back in those days for a penny a slice. And I I more than tripled my pocket money, more than tripled. And, of course, I ate a lot of toast because I was a fat Sorry, I was what was the word for? I was always hungry, so I, I, I ate my own product. I also bought jars of Vegemite because kids love Vegemite, right? Um, ah, there you go. Make money before you are ten. I was eight, nine at the time, nine, ten actually. A good, a good investment strategy, mate. Good. I want to ask something else, just in relate, like again on these solutions and. and when you're talking about the individual again, there's so much good change happen from bottom up. So from a, I, I'm a 40 plus person, as we've said numerous times. So I'm in this category where I could have ageism against me. What can I do to keep my mindset fresh or to, to help drive this change up? Because also from a government perspective, governments listen to change coming up the up the chain. If people aren't happy about something, then as you say, whether they want to be re-elected re or not, a lot of it depends on what you know what the general public is thinking about them. So what what can I do? What can others do who are in that age group to keep the mindset fresh and create change? Okay. I've written a few books on how to start businesses. No, no, not books, sorry, articles and stuff on how to start businesses and so on. But that's, and I'm working with someone who will be doing that as part of what we do. I won't be doing that anymore because I was in marketing for 10 years and our clients were SMEs, right? So I went from recruitment to marketing and now back to recruitment, essentially. No, for individuals, I've got two free books. They're online, they're on Kindle, and you can have them, you know, if you want a copy, you just got to email me. 
Um, you'll be sharing my email address, presumably. One is aimed at employers. Yeah, one's aimed at employers, how to recruit great people. So if you want to change governments and, and employers, they really need to understand how to recruit better. And all the way through that, even though it wasn't written originally, I, I published that book in 2005, both books in 2005, and rewrote them last year, okay, that it wasn't written originally for older people, but I've added a bit in. But almost everything about recruiting better is anti-discrimination. If you discriminate, you're cutting off your nose, yeah, just to spite your face. There's no point. I mean, if you are a misogynist and you are a racist, well, you know, okay, bad luck in business, you know, it's bad. But the other book on, on how to find a job, absolutely critical. You know, there's a big chapter on resumes. There's a big chapter on preparing for interviews, which almost no one writes that, that side of things. There's lots of little booklets on resumes and the interview itself. But what about the follow-up after the interview? Absolutely. There's so many key tips in there. Yeah. You follow up after the interview. At the end of your thank you email, you say something along these lines. Thanks, John. Really enjoyed meeting with you. I'll be in touch next week to discuss the suitability of my application. Now, what does that do? I only got two of those in my entire recruiting career. Even when I published the book, I still didn't get them, you know. But I've immediately, I've got to go, oh, God, the bastard's going to ring me, okay? This is what recruiters think. This is what they do. They're going to ring, oh, God, he's totally wrong for the job. What am I going to say? <laughs> you know, so they've got to have a, got <laughs> to have something prepared. Or they've got to email quick smart and say, sorry, but the other candidates were stronger. You know, every single one of those emails is a lie, by the way. Every single one is a lie. The reason why you got rejected is because they were stronger because they were younger. They weren't male or female. They weren't disabled. They weren't gay. And they weren't dark-skinned. That's why, you know. And for 90, okay, let's say 95% of all of them are just lies. And then people get so frustrated. You as a candidate get so frustrated. I have done this job for 10 years. I am really good at it. Why can't I get an interview? You will never get feedback from a recruiter. There's only one way to get good feedback that will help you in your job search, only one way, and it's a very simple thing. And this is probably my biggest tip. First of all, put that thing into the, into the thank you email. And the second one is you send, and then you, when you get the rejection, you write, I'd like to give you a call to, dis, to discuss in what areas I could, have, I could improve on to get such a job in the future, okay? If you ask them to tell me why, you say to them, in my first couple of weeks in recruitment, I made this mistake and my client and my boss just said, Toby, we pay you to keep these bastards away from us because they got a ranting phone call from the candidate because I, I had told him that he didn't have the right skills, that he, that he was just so wrong in various ways. And, and you know, I, I was polite, but basically he didn't have what, what it needed. And he just said rubbish and hung up on me and then rang my, my big client, who was a very major corporation, and rang my recruitment boss. Now, I was being paid to keep these ranting people away from them. In, that's one of the things they pay us for as recruiters. Never, ever give honest feedback unless they ask very politely. A lot of people can't, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but it's certainly uh, some people do find feedback challenging. Toby, I want to, 
I know that I'd given you some questions in relation to so this episode and it's fantastic. There's one question I actually missed off my run sheet that I share with people and so I'm going to put you right on the spot, mate. I always like to ask my guests this. So what's the one thing that's had the greatest impact on your own leadership journey? Ah, learning to listen. Oh, yeah, okay, here we go. Here we go. When I was doing my MBA out of the Australian Graduate School, right, we had a thing called interpersonal skills. And I assumed that because I was very popular and noisy and and one of the smartest kids on, on the course, I was 28 at the time, 29, I assumed that, and we had to form into work groups, and I discovered that no one wanted to be in my work group, nobody. And I became good friends with this lecturer over the next few years, but he then asked everybody, why does no one want to work with Toby? And I was stunned. I, I mean, I was practically in tears, you know, like, you know, I just assumed that why wouldn't they? And I'm still friends with some of these people, by the way. We, we, we had a reunion last year. And, well, because you, you dominate everything. You think you're smarter than all of us. You talk too much. You don't listen. Why would we want to? Why would we want to work with you? I mean, they were politer than that, but that's that's what they were. That's what they said. And then, when I'm doing emotional intelligence with my interns and my staff over many years, we have feedback sessions, and I keep getting told I don't listen enough. So the biggest thing for my leadership was less talking, more listening. So I'm now going to shut up. Very well said. Toby, and fantastic lesson to learn. We've spoken to a lot about that sort of point on the Culture Things podcast previously for leaders. So, yes, far more listening, less less talking, less telling. Mate, I've thoroughly enjoyed today. It's been a uh, been a fantastic conversation. Great to learn from you. I love the the candidness, the openness, the directness that you do approach uh, that you take with this topic. Uh, like we've had some previous guests recently around some you know some fairly, I guess, topics that people find. I can't think of the right word, but they're challenging for people to take on some of these topics. So, you know, I appreciate you coming on the culture of things and sharing these things. And do you know what? There's there's a person who you remind me of, which I love and I think is a fantastic, not that I know this guy personally, but you so remind me of John Cleese. Ah, Has anybody ever act. said that to you? No, no. The Ministry of Silly Walks. Um, <laughs> I, I reckon. I reckon there's a if the if the ageism thing doesn't work out. I reckon there's a there's a double situation there with John Cleese, mate. But I, I think you've got that sort of direct um, and dry sense of humour to go with it, mate. So again, thank you very thank you very much for being a guest on the Culture of Things podcast, mate, and sharing ageism and how we can all help remove these barriers of ageism in the workplace, mate. Thank you very much. Appreciate you very much, Brendan. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Pleasure. Have you ever excluded someone from being interviewed or hired because of their age? Maybe you've been the one excluded. You may have experienced ageism or been the one being ageist and not even know it. If you're a 40 plus year old man or a 38 plus year old woman and have applied for a role and never received an interview, there's a chance you have experienced ageism. If you're a woman, you may have also been impacted by appearance ageism. This was something I've never really considered before. Based on the figure Toby quoted from Deloitte Research, ageism is a pandemic, costing the Australian economy over $60 billion per year. Given this figure in Australia, each of us should be doing more to combat ageism. 
Statistics show the ageing population is also increasing globally. So it's not just an Australian problem, it's a global one. As a leader, what will you do to combat ageism? These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with Toby. My first key takeaway, leaders don't subscribe to ageism. They'll see all people's hidden strengths and be determined to leverage them, irrespective of age or appearance. Leaders know there's a lot of talent in the ageing community that isn't being utilised. Leaders want to hire the best. That's why they don't subscribe to ageism. My second key takeaway, leaders can laugh at themselves. Toby's a super fun guy who's enjoying life. Organising a living wake for his birthday is a great example of his fun character. Being able to laugh at yourself requires you to be comfortable in who you are and what you can do. Older people and leaders know who they are and what they can do, which is why they often have little problem laughing at themselves. My third key takeaway, leaders do less talking and more listening. As Toby said when he spoke of what has impacted his leadership journey the most, learning to listen more was a confronting experience for him. Despite this, it's one that has stuck with him and he works at it every day. Like a true leader, he's bettering himself constantly and learning to do less talking and more listening. So in summary, my three key takeaways were, leaders don't subscribe to ageism, leaders can laugh at themselves, and leaders do less talking and more listening. If you want to talk culture, leadership or teamwork, or have any questions or feedback about the episode, leave me a comment on the socials, or you can leave me a voice message at thecultureofthings.com. Thanks for joining me, and remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thank you for listening to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. Please visit brendanrogers.com.au to access the show notes. If you love the Culture of Things podcast, please subscribe, rate and give a review on Apple Podcasts. And remember, a healthy culture is your competitive advantage. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.